Welcome to the Park Podcast, where dialogue across difference is vital to community wellness. I'm Dr. Leah Howard, your host in this space where open dialogue, the free exchange of ideas, and civil and robust expression of divergent views is valued. Here we will explore the research, the practical applications, and the benefits of effective, ethical, and civil dialogue in a diverse world. We hope to model respectful conversation that accurately and authentically frames contentious issues, hoping to reach an ideologically diverse audience. In our last episode, we heard from a Penn professor of psychology and a head of a nonprofit teaching in the Urban Studies Department at Penn about perspectives on political empathy from individual cognition and grassroots community engagement. For this next episode, we turn to the disciplines of fine arts, anthropology, and Africana studies to think about the importance of place and representation in order to build political empathy across cultural differences. Welcome to our guests, Kenneth Lum, the Marilyn Jordan Taylor Presidential Professor and Chair of the Department of Fine Arts at the University of Pennsylvania's Stuart Weitzman School of Design. He teaches the SNF Padilla-designated course, The Chinese Body and the Production of Space in Chinatown. Deborah Thomas, R. Jean Brownlee Professor of Anthropology, and the director of the Center for Experimental Ethnography at the University of Pennsylvania, where she is core faculty in gender, sexuality, and women's studies and holds a secondary appointment in the Graduate School of Education. She co-teaches the SNF Padilla course, Citing Black Girlhood. And Grace Sanders Johnson, assistant professor in the Department of Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She co-teaches the SNF Padilla course, Citing Black Girlhood. Ken, let me start with you. In the course description for your course, The Chinese Body and the Production of Space in Chinatown, you say the course will be part public art course studying the nature of representation, part cultural studies course examining identity politics through the prism of cinema and popular forms of printed media, and part city planning course examining the structuration of the ethnic enclave of Chinatowns. Can you explain why you are using these multidisciplinary frameworks and how they work in concert to best describe the Chinese experience? How do these different perspectives aid understanding, helping to perhaps grow political empathy? Sure. I mean, that's an important question because uh, interdisciplinarity is uh, essential for uh, the uh, approach I take in terms of the, uh, this uh, course. In fact, all, all the courses I teach. Why? Because um, you know we we live in a world where all the norms that we take for granted have uh, have not been have been um, beset by disciplinarity, have beset, been beset by kind of professional uh, epistemes, ep- academic epistemes that um, that ha- have uh, contributed to all kinds of problems in the social world, including inequity and social injustice and so on. And uh, it has had a straitjacketing effect in terms of the way we understand otherness, difference, uh, and and such. And it and uh, because we we become victim to specializations and and, and so on. But the specializations also um, 
you know, uh, makes sense in terms of the logic of, let's say, the uh, uh, capitalism, which requires that, right? And I think it's important to upset all the kind of normative ways we think about things. And, and one of the key ways to, to do that, to um, achieve uh, a challenge to normative thought is, is to uh, break down the barriers between, between disciplines and, and t- take advantage of um, different uh, perspectives and approaches of knowledge streams to, um, to tackle, uh, you know, not just tackle the subject at hand, which is, you know, Chinese-ness and, and, and so on in, in, in my class, but also tackle uh, uh, questions of inequity and social injustice and so on, which, I've, which as I said, have been the products of intense disciplinarity and specialization of uh, knowledges. Devin Grace, you both are teaching a course entitled Citing Black Girlhood, which is part of a multi-year project bringing attention to the specific social inequality faced by Black girls. Your course, like Ken's, seems deeply interdisciplinary. Deb, your primary appointment is in anthropology, and Grace, yours is in Africana studies. How do you bring different lenses to this course? Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for this great question. Um, I think what's amazing about this course is that while we, um, Deb and I, are trained maybe in different fields and use different methodologies um, through anthropology, and I'm trained as a historian, um, a lot of what we're bringing to the table is actually are actually interdisciplinary practices that are uh, the core of Africana studies. So in many ways, um, we have a very similar lens. <laughs> um, we're bringing ideas and methodologies that are not only interdisciplinary, but multimodal. Um, we're also bringing a lot of thinking that comes from um, theories or, of Black feminism and Caribbean feminist thought and thinking. And so in that way, the course is goes even beyond interdisciplinarity, right? Um, it's um, bringing so much of uh, the history of the fields that we've uh, been a part of together. Thanks for that, Grace. And, and uh, also thank you, Leah, for the great questions. Um, I just want to build on one thing that Grace said, which had to do with um, the integration of creative practices with the intellectual uh, agendas of the class. And uh, that stems also from both of our involvement in the Center for Experimental Ethnography, uh, in which we seek to support this kind of multimodal work among faculty and students. And by multimodal, I mean work uh, work that is that incorporates a creative practice as part of its research methodology, not just in the dissemination of findings. And since both Grace and I uh, work through various forms of artistic practice, and we're working with Vashti Dubois here, who runs the Color Girls Museum and who has been. Um, curating a number of really innovative visual arts projects. 
Um, we're really seeking to bring students to an understanding that creative practice and artistic practice is in fact intellectual work and that that kind of research methodology can also be uh, very productively generative of transformational dialogues on the ground. So with the course, we're really seeking to integrate research in a more traditional intellectual sense, but from an interdisciplinary point of view, uh, artistic practice, also multidisciplinary in this instance, and a kind of social engagement, and to find the nexus of those three sort of modes of engagement and accountability through the lens of this course. I would add one other thing that, um, you know, comes out in just this interview practice is that Deb and I are teaching the course together. And so there's this other component of co-creation um, that we're not only practicing, but we're, you know, navigating and also offering that as um, a tool to our students, but also um, showing and practicing what it's like to work together. And I think that's an important part of the multimodal work and the artistic practice that is not solo work. Um, even if we might be solo artists, we're still co-creators, co-collaborators. Wow, this is so fascinating to hear about the many ways you're braiding together different ways of thinking and practicing. Really appreciate this multimodal, this creative practices alongside of kind of the more traditional academic disciplines. Since the uh, murder, though, of George Floyd, many disciplines are reckoning with racism within their disciplinary framework, embedded in the methodology and the way we see when we do research. What are your disciplines going through right now and how might these ideas be reflected in your course? That's a, a very good and um, timely question. Uh, within anthropology, you probably know these kinds of rethinking, reflections, reframings have really been ongoing since the beginning of the discipline. Um, we can think about uh, Frederick Douglass's writing, for example, as a refutation, uh, a direct refutation of some of the more racist analyses of um, uh, bodily inhabitation, of thought, of differential human evolution that were really even being promulgated in the um, 18th and early 19th centuries. And, uh, you know, different, really throughout the 20th century, uh, anthropologists have been sort of constantly and sometimes very publicly involved in this kind of reframing of the field. Certainly uh, the Boazian intervention, right, Franz Boaz and his students in the early 20th century, which was to dislodge common sense ideas about race from biology. Um, that was sort of an explicitly anti-racist practice at the time and was happening in conjunction with mobilization through the UN uh, and through other spaces after World War II to try to um, reorient our understanding of human variation across the world. And of course, throughout the 20th century, 
other Black and Indigenous scholars, anthropologists, have issued various kinds of critiques, not only of the theoretical framework of the discipline, but of its methodologies. Um, and other scholars as well have been attuned to uh, the disciplinary assumptions that sort of undergirded this initial interest among Western European and North American practitioners in quote unquote other people around the world and have tried to reformulate a new way of uh, learning with people in collaboration with people about the kinds of ways that they do things in order to demonstrate that the Western European universal is in fact a fallacy and that we cannot rank human groups uh, worldwide alongside this kind of evolutionary model that has Western Europe as the pinnacle of civilization. That said, um, you know, last summer, the events of last summer opened up a new moment for a broader rethinking. I think it has drawn, those events have drawn attention to these processes that have been ongoing and has drawn more uh, uh, more attention to the work, especially of Black and Indigenous anthropologists who have been critiquing the discipline and trying to make it anew. I think at Penn specifically, um, a number of uh, issues were raised, certainly uh, in the protests around the Samuel Morton Crania collection, and then uh, later in the academic year around the discovery of human remains from two girls in the Africa family that had been brought to the museum after the bombing of the MOVE compound in 1985. So I think these kinds of issues are becoming generally more visible to the public and have um, inaugurated really important changes within our spaces, certainly within the museum space. There's quite a bit of mobilization now in order to create uh, an inventory of the physical anthropology collections, in order to uh, create processes for repatriation of the Samuel Morton Crania collection, uh, many of which had already been repatriated, but in order to accelerate those processes and do the appropriate kind of community-driven research that would facilitate that kind of Work And I think we have that work to do in Penn's department um, as well. The department is one of the very first anthropology departments in the country. Daniel Britton uh, was the first person to have been hired in the anthropology department. And he, like Morton, held these kinds of racist evolutionary ideas about human quote-unquote types and uh, the divergences between racial groups. And, um, you know, this summer I've been running a, a PERM project with a couple of undergraduate students, Alea Manning and Jesus Fayares. Um, and we have been making a film about Carlton Kuhn, who was trained at Harvard but came to Penn um, in the uh, late 40s or early 50s. Um, and he also was an advocate of a hypothesis of multi-regional evolution, which is to say he did not believe that all humans came from the same ancestor um, and instead read contemporary racial groups back in history 
and um, you know, posited a schema where where there were five racial groups that independently evolved and uh, among which there was no contact until the very modern period, so that each racial group would have emerged into modern Homo sapiens, but at different times. And of course, uh, for him, Africans were the last to have um, emerged into modern human civilization. And I say this all to say that often people talk about these older racist ideas or these older racist collection practices as something that was just in the past, and it's how people thought then. But I think it's important to really remember that at every moment in these historical trajectories, there are people who are doing something different. And at the moment that Kuhn was espousing this multi-regional evolutionary hypothesis, there were in fact physical anthropologists who were actively attempting to move the field into a different understanding of human evolution and human origins and one that wasn't grounded in this kind of strict racial um, reckoning, you know, and so Kuhn actively resisted that kind of innovation in the field. And that has important legacies today. And there are visual representations in the form of casts and busts of his theorization, which he commissioned, that are still in the museum. And so these legacies are not only um, theoretical legacies or ideas. They're, they're in fact materially living amongst us in the spaces in which we inhabit. It's not uh, just abstract, right? So it's important, I think, to contend with these issues um, and to, you know, for each department in its own way, on its own terms, to develop an awareness about these histories in order to create new spaces for intervention and engagement in the present? Um, yes, Leah, this is an amazing question. And just to, you know, say, add a few more things to Deb's comments, you know, Deb started by saying, you know, this work has been being done for a long time in both of our uh, disciplinary homes. And I think you know, we might assume that the field of Africana studies, and we know this, the field of Africana studies has been reckoning with racism and anti-Blackness since its formation. That's really how much of its formation came to be. But I think um, what's interesting about the question you asked is when you say like the way we see when we're doing research. And I think that's so much of the work that the field of Africana studies has been doing and is trying to continue to do is think about the ways we see. Um, I'm right now just thinking about uh, one, a scholar, Kevin Kwashi, you know, Kevin Kwashi's work, he get, gave a, a faculty colloquium in our department at Penn. Um, and he started off by saying that he invites his classrooms to imagine a black world. And that that's their given. He starts with the given that the world is black and it's centering African people. And then from there, imagining what kind of questions, what kind of answers um, come from, what kind of creativity come from those moments. Um, and so I think in our discipline, um, while there's a long history of addressing racism and anti-blackness, I think one of the projects that many of us in Africana studies 
are working through now is how to expand that scene, right? How to expand our visions, how to take things that might be text that might be familiar to us um, that come from authors like Octavia Butler, or Toni Morrison, and see them anew in this particular moment. Um, and then also acknowledge that while George Floyd's murder is specific, many of the emotions and feelings and the sentiment that is that was reverberated and felt um, is familiar. And it's not the first time. And so how do we attend to that kind of rehearsal? Um, and then I think for our course, what's really exciting is that we get to focus on Black girls' lenses. <laughs> um, and so thinking about how even within the field of Africana studies, there are areas that have a little less light. And certainly Black girlhood is one of those, especially if we think about um, the study of um, sexual violence against Black girls, um, not just in the United States, but also throughout the world, which is an important component of our course, which is not only thinking about Philadelphia, but it's also thinking about Jamaica and South Africa. And we're bringing our knowledge of anti-Blackness, but particularly thinking about Black girls and um, their experience of violence um, throughout the African diaspora, which is really attending to a global anti-Blackness. It's not just unique to the United States. Ken, can you talk about the other and how, in the U.S. context in particular, space has played a part in accentuating difference through the physical separation of neighborhoods? What has that done to our understanding of dialogue across difference and citizenship, which are ideas central to the SNF Padilla program? Well, that's a very complex question because um, since the founding of the Republic, space has been differentiated according to skin and, and color. With that is the differentiation of privilege, some people having more privilege uh, over others and, um, and so on. Um, I mean, the, the fact is there's uh, the, the United States, like many, many other countries as well, but, um, but I would say maybe it, there's a particular character to uh, American social life and it's highly defined by the social geography of, uh, of race and, uh, and, and such. And, um, and race is, uh, you know, is, is, is embodied and carried by bodies, by human bodies, right? Where, where, where can they can live, where they can go, uh, what are the bureaucratic uh, uh, rules that say you can't uh, go from A to B, but someone else of a different color can, can, can visit um, at will. And that's also not just race, but gendered, right? In the 19th century, you know, women even of um, upper class could not go unescorted throughout Paris, whereas men of all classes could basically wander throughout Paris uh, at will, and so on. So, you know, there's the issue of liberties of movement and um, who can who can take residency somewhere. The idea of ref, uh, refuge um, and um, and also systems of confinement. Right, African Americans and people of color are um, incarcerated at a much higher uh, you know, r level relative to their population and uh, to, to the population at large than, than, than whites, for example. And so all of that uh, contributes to, to the uh, sense that um, you know, space and uh, race 
and uh, is is endemic to to the way we we've always ha- we we understand the uh, you know real politics of of how one uh, gets through life and how our society is structured um, in, in America. And I, I, I sorry, I just want to add also also that. Uh, attended with that is this contest of spatial imaginaries, right? So there are, there's all these kind of resistance points, disjunctive points, which, which I think is really important as well. And, um, and that requires a kind of multidisciplinary um, approach that requires, um, you know, a breaking of norms, as I said, uh, in response to the first question. But it also is um, requires uh, much more focus in terms of the real problems at hand. Problems have been exacerbated in uh, recent decades, I would say, uh, with the privileging of uh, private interests over the public good. That's an inversion of um, you know what I was taught in civics class, <laughs> if if civics is still being taught uh, when I was an undergraduate, for example, or high school, right? So. There's a lot, a lot of things, and, and they all contribute to the congealing of um, and confinement of uh, of difference according to enclaves, according to social income, and, and such. Just absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about your course in in answer to the question, how is space related to the body? And you've, you said a little bit already about this, and it's so interesting. Your course title explicitly talks about how the individual, the Chinese body, and the larger community space, Chinatown, intersect. How do these two um, ideas play out? In the SNFpedia program, we see individual and community wellness as connected. So we too acknowledge the connection, um, but how does the course explore this specifically? Well, let me just take the example of Chinatown, which is obviously an ethnic enclave of uh, of the Chinese, right within the kind of ter- territory of a of a you know largely white non non Chinese um, uh, civic sphere. Well, Chinese were, uh, Chinatowns were formed as a, a kind of bulwark against, you know, threats, anti-Sinal sentiments uh, that, you know, extend way back uh, in England, at least in Limehouse to the 18th century, but certainly in, in America since, since um, you know, let's just say after the Opium War and there was um, extensive migration of contracted laborers from China coming to, to the Americas, you know, to build the railway, to build the wars, to... Um, Build the um, agrarian uh, um, economy of California, for example, and and it was all these kinds of attacks and so on 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 the Chinese that uh, that uh, you know n- required this uh, o- enclave to to form right because um, and, and so on. But it's complex because that enclave is also um, it, it it's self protecting for for the Chinese in Chinatown. It, you know. You can get Chinese meals. You can speak to uh, compatriots and and so on. Because remember, they weren't they weren't American citizens at that time. They were all part of the Empire of China on on, on eight year uh, contracts and so on. And yet, at the same time, it became a site of uh, intense surveillance, right? So uh, you know, it was it was heavily policed, and um, it was also heterotopic in the sense that it was a site for all kinds of um, let's just say uh, less. Um, Save uh, more, um, less uh, or more unsavory types of occupations, such as prostitution, drugs, and 
and so on. And they would be also somewhat permitted within uh, the territory of um, Chinatown. The police would keep all kinds of blotters in terms of the movement of um, Chinese, right? For example, in the 19th century, uh, starting in the late 19th century, you had um, maps of all the uh, uh, chop suey restaurants throughout Manhattan, right? Everyone was kind of mapped out. Generally, they were very near the uh, train stations, right? The subway stations. Why? Because they would be, and the reason being, of course, is that the uh, subway was an easy way for the Chinese workers in the uh, chop suey restaurants to uh, get onto the subway and return back home to Chinatown, right? So there's a logic in terms of just the planning aspects. That's why planning is also also important uh, uh, citation for me in terms of in terms of the uh, the course, right? So that they could re return back. In addition, anytime uh, a Chinese uh, person would wander beyond, let's say, a chop suey, because that would get, uh, be the reason for them to be there for to to work, there would be reports back to local newspapers, um, uh, and it'd be very quite mundane reports, but uh, collectively it was it was quite revealing. They would. There would be reports of oh, two Chinese men were uh, spotted walking, uh, you know, near Union Union uh, Park, say, or what, Union Square, and and so on. And all these all this data would be fed back to uh, police precincts in terms of the movement of um, of, of Chinese bodies from uh, that were not seen as part uh, or, or seen as being too far away from uh, a chop suey restaurant or too far away from the Chinese enclave of Chinatown. So all these sorts of things, I think, um, uh, bring in a lot of, call up a lot of disciplines in terms of the, you know, Foucauldian discipline, all kinds of uh, notions in terms of our understanding of, um, um, of, um, of the, you know, the constitution of space, but the, and, and of uh, subject formation in space. But I think the other thing that's uh, interesting is that as, uh, is that you, you can't, they, no one could really control the movement of, of bodies entirely, right? And so there was always negotiations. You even had, uh, you know, uh, white women um, marrying to a significant degree, you know, few in number, but to a significant degree, generally working class women uh, who were working in the Chinese restaurant, they'd marry a boss, they'd marry a fellow waiter, a Chinese waiter, and and so on. And of course, that was scandal for the um, all kinds of, uh, you know, tabloid newspapers saying these are, this is, what happens if you let the races um, mingle and things like that? And so there's just there's just you know once you start, that's just one example uh, I'm citing, and and that one example, you know, leads to many many insights about uh, in terms of many many fields, right? And so that's why I need uh, you know a kind of interdisciplinary approach in order to to even get uh, uh, you know this one example I've just cited. Deb and Grace, your course description fascinatingly uses site, site, and site. That's S-I-G-H-T, S-I-T-E, and C-I-T-E. You want to see, to place, and to amplify the voices of Black girls in three locations, Philadelphia, Jamaica, and South Africa. Can you tell us more about site, site, and site? What needs to be seen? What needs to be explored about each place? And how will Black girls be heard and given recognition for their contributions? Leah, I have to say that when Deb and I read this question, we um, 
just smiled because you saw us <laughs> and you saw um, the nuance in the course and in our course description by identifying you know, that we're really thinking about um, what to see, to place, and also to amplify Black girls' um, voices. Um, and I think immediately when I think about, when I heard this question, I'm thinking about uh, Darnella Fraser. And Darnella Fraser, as you all might know, is uh, the 17-year-old girl who captured George Floyd's murder. And I think for us, if we're thinking about sight, sight, and sight, um, on the one hand, uh, there's a moment when we think about Darnella where she is not seen in this moment that has reverberated around the world. We don't see her, but she's behind the camera. And as a result, she should be cited. Um, and it's not only that she should be cited, that we should know that a Black girl um, documented this moment, but also that we create space to care for her. And I think this is an important component of the course as well, because often um, Black girls are um, placed in situations, conscripted into doing labor um, that they should not be doing. Um, and so even when we listen to Darnella's testimony, we know that she had a clear sense that she had to document this moment, but at the same time, she at the same time she had to protect the younger people that were with her. So she sheltered them, and then she documented this moment—a moment that she shouldn't have had to. And so I think a lot of our work is thinking about where um, Black girls are documenting, where they're creating, but also thinking about how we can create spaces of care. And I think that's what's really important about Vashti Dubois' work is because Vashti's work with the Colored Girl, Color Girls Museum is really about seeing Black girls, right? Particularly the project, um, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, which is a part of this course. We're collaborating with Vashti um, to think about uh, refuge for Black girls, refuge for Black girls um, as a space, you know, post a violent incident, but also refuge as a space, um, as an incubator for our creativity, for, um, for our ingenuity, right? Um, and so I think that that's really the exciting part about these three sites, <laughs> um, is that it's not S-I-T-E, location specific, um, but that these locations just amplify the many ways in which Black girls can be seen, um, have been seen historically, but also the ways in which they should be cited for their ingenuity, um, for their theorizing, for the different ways that they engage with artistic um, multimodal practices um, that we can learn from and also co-collaborate with. And as Deb said earlier in the interview, take seriously as a part of the intellectual process and as our and practice. Yeah, Grace mentioned that one of our collaborators on the broader project of which the course is a part is Bashtai Dubois, who runs the Colored Girls Museum. Um, and one of the things that inspired us to put together this course in this way 
uh, was that Vashti always envisioned that exhibit the first time ever I saw your face, uh, which is an, a collection of portraits of Black girls, as an exhibit that would travel and that would um, include other girls from other locations who would then become part of a traveling exhibit and that they would all travel together and they would always have each other's back, right? Um, and the three of us had actually, in the pre-pandemic times, um, been speaking together about trying to do a project that would span these spaces, would span Philadelphia, Jamaica, and South Africa, because all of us um, have thought through at different moments uh, the interesting links between and among those sites. Um, and it, uh, those locations became a sort of space of thinking really expansively and differently about diaspora, which we usually reckon through West Africa um, to the so-called New World. But in this case, that we you know think about the kinds of um, connections and challenges that emerge when thinking from the space of South Africa rather than West Africa. And um, having developed some different projects with collaborator collaborators in these spaces, we thought that Vashti's museum and that exhibit would be a good um, medium for that kind of travel and for that kind of collective engagement. Um, Crystal Strong at the GSE is also one of our pen collaborators. And you may know that she's one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter Philadelphia. And so her uh, activist engagement will also be part of the ways that we're thinking about things, not only in Philadelphia, but in our other sites. In Jamaica, we're working with Deborah Anzinger, who is an artist and who also started and now directs um, a sort of engagement residency space called NLS, New Local Space. Uh, and our collaborator in South Africa is Victoria Collis Butelezi, who is the director of the sort of newly minted Center for Race, Class, and Gender at the University of Johannesburg. And she is mobilizing other partners in South Africa as well. Um, so we'll be, as we're teaching the course, um, Victoria will also be teaching a similar course in South Africa. And Deb will also be um, integrating some of the students at the Edna Manley College of Visual and Performing Arts in Kingston. And we will travel to these spaces, Jamaica in the summer of 2022 and South Africa in the summer of 2023, in order that the students will be able to have uh, experiences working with these artists and with activists and other, uh, you know, experience other engaged collaborations. Um, in in these spaces, and we will travel together, which is to say that the South African participants will also come to Jamaica, and the Jamaican participants will also go to South Africa. So we're trying to enact this kind of um, diasporic dialogue across three sites from the vantage point of Black girls, uh, understanding that there is a global phenomenon of anti-Black violence 
and of particular forms of gender violence and sexism, but that they are experienced in particular ways in these sites based on our um, specific histories. So that's one of the um, areas of interrogation that we're hoping students will really come to learn through the course of the class, but also through their travel. Ken, you first taught the Chinese Body SNF Padilla course in the spring semester of 2020, right as COVID-19 became a global pandemic. Not only did the world shut down and work and school become remote, but anti-Asian bias took on a particularly ugly dimension. Can you explain what it was like to be teaching this subject matter in this context? Did any of your course materials prove insightful or give students skills or approaches to living in this particularly fraught moment? Well, the short answer is, is resoundingly yes, because um, I, for one, am old enough to um, never believe that somehow, you know, um, the Chinese or Asians have uh, entered into this kind of model citizen stage and, uh, and our, any kind of anti-Asian sentiment was basically a thing of the past. I never believed that entirely. Right. I mean, things improved and so on. And I, I, I'm not saying it didn't. And there was greater mobility and so on. But, but you know, there's there's always um, if you're if and I think this is true from pretty much all people of difference. Right. Is that, um, you know, those differences are, are, are those reminders of differences from others. Right. The, the, are always, always there. And they and, and they always come back, even in the most kind of benign um, settings, right? It could be like a little, um, I could be meeting a, a curator and, and the curator, because I'm an artist, and the curator might say, uh, oh, of course you're interested in that because you're Asian, right? And I tell them, well, no, that, that's not why. I mean, and so on. So there'd be little things like that, which are, which I, I try not to take, um, exaggerate or, or, you know, more than it is, but, but you, you get a, you know, enough of them and at some point, you know, um, it's a, it, it, they form a kind of reminder of who, who you are and what you, what you look like as well. So it was very relevant, right, um, at, at that time. I mean, I had a, an unfortunate um, incident in a, uh, you know, an uh, Acme supermarket park, uh, parking lot. I was just going to my car and some, so the guy next to me just started yelling at me. I won't, <laughs> I won't be rude enough to repeat what he said, you know, in a very threatening way. Right, as I was loading bags of purchases in in my trunk, right, and uh, I just ignored them. But you know, so many of our the three of the students in my class, in fact, uh, during that time, uh, experienced uh, not dissimilar, you know, um, you know, uh, events ha happening to them. Uh, all all three of which uh, uh, I, I reported to uh, Penn Police. And I'm so sorry to hear about uh, what you experienced in terms of both overt racism and um, kind of microaggressions as you um, walked through the earth. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad your class was a place where uh, students were protected by you <laughs> uh, contacting uh, campus security and safety. Um, it is a salient uh, uh, topic in terms of that course, right? In terms of how do, how is difference negotiated and renegotiated you know, for the sake of survival, right? Through since the uh, first uh, Chinatown in um, Limehouse in East London in in the uh, late eighteenth um, century, and so on. So yes, yes, that's it, um, it was extremely uh, relevant, but it was also um, a reminder that uh, for all forms of um, 
you know, racism, you know, in this case, uh, you know, uh, yellow body racism has, has been expunged. It's always kind of there. And I would say it's also kind of endemic, just going back to the, uh, your, your last question, it's endemic to the way, uh, you know, um, the original sin, of, which is part of the founding of, of the United States, with the genocide of Native people and, and slavery and so on. Deb and Grace, COVID-19 has also exposed systemic inequities facing African-Americans in the U.S. With both your global lens and looking directly at our home here in Philadelphia, how will you unpack the different layers of inequity facing Black girls? How are Black girls not being seen? And how will you explore representation and likewise misrepresentation to make sure your students learn to see more clearly? One of the first things I'm, I thought about when, I, when you're saying when you're asking this question uh, is again just the work that has been ongoing um, from organizations that are thinking about and with Black girls, and I immediately am thinking of a long walk home, which is based in Chicago, which has been doing work with. Uh, young girls for over about 20 years now um, around uh, gender-based violence, um, artistic practice, and activism. And this past summer, they came out with a uh, the first and only national study uh, around the status of Black girls during COVID. And what's fascinating about this work is you see so many areas where Black girls' labor is unseen, but also Black, black girls' creativity um, and um, thoughtfulness is unseen. I think one of the largest statistics is in, that many Black girls became home care providers for their families under the pandemic. Um, one of the more startling um, statistics that they offered, however, is that while much of the literature suggests that uh, children and do not did not have the same kind of response or reaction to COVID nineteen. That there were three hundred thousand cases of children um, who experienced COVID nineteen up until this point, and that um, that Black girls were five times more likely um, to be those children uh, who contracted COVID nineteen, and it was just such an interesting statistic because one of, it just reminded us of another place of invisibility, right? And one of the things they wrote with that, it was that that is likely because Black girls are often working in um, care positions, home care positions for people who were ill. They were also people who uh, were taking on jobs that were jobs that were mandatory jobs during the pandemic. And I think it would be important to remember that COVID-19 is not over. And so in that regard, even as we move back into the classroom, we will have, you know, young women um, who are also still caring for family members or um, dealing with the residual effects of this pandemic. Um, and so I think that's one of the ways in which we can really encourage our students to see and not just see Black girls who are out there somewhere, but also to understand that that's something that's living amongst us within our classrooms, um, on our campuses, um, and certainly being able to take the experiences of the girls that we'll be engaging with and 
thinking with in South Africa and Jamaica who are experiencing the pandemic in similar, but also um, different ways. The only thing that um, I would add um, to what Grace just said um, has to do again with um, the first time ever I saw your face exhibit. And as part of that process in creating that exhibit, um, Vashti asked artists to select a girl between the ages of seven and 25 as a muse for their portrait. And both the artist and the girl were asked to keep a journal of their experience. And each muse was invited to bring an object that was important to her into the portrait. Right. And so the, the portrait that is ultimately created then is not just the actual work of art that features the girl, right? It is the work of art that features the girl. It is her narrative. It is the narrative about her by the artist. It is narratives about her by others close to her. And this sort of composite figure then acts as uh, a counter discourse to those other discourses that more regularly circulate about Black girls and make them hyper-visible in the public sphere, right? Discourses that circulate through the justice system, through the medical system, through the educational system, through the religious system, right? That position, the Black girl, sometimes as victim, um, sometimes as wayward, um, and uh, always usually as vulnerable. And, you know, part of what's so lovely about the exhibit and what we are seeking to cultivate in the class is that we want to certainly uh, encourage people to see the forms of violence that are specific to Black girls globally, um, but also to see beyond those rubrics of violence and survival, right? And Grace mentioned this before, to see Black girls as creative, as innovators, as people who are not only acted upon, but also as acting, and to encourage um, that kind of perspective or that mode of seeing generally throughout the course. Ken, can you talk about your research and your experience as an artist? Your art has been exhibited widely in world-renowned museums, and you are the chief curatorial advisor of the Monument Lab. How does your artistic practice and curatorial work intersect with your academic research? What kinds of things are you thinking about as you communicate with wider audiences beyond your classroom? Well, first of all, I see myself first and foremost as an artist. I don't see myself as an academic at all. Um, even though I've, uh, you know, I've curated uh, several uh, large-scale exhibitions, I co-founded Monument Lab, which also had a, uh, you know, three million dollar budget exhibition for the city of Philadelphia, and uh, and I've written, you know, m many many essays. But even though I've written many many essays, I I write it from the perspective of, of an artist who's not entirely. Um, uh, I don't feel entirely at home with the idea of being an artist in the art system. I think there's a lot of problems in the art system, the art world, which um, has never um, has has never made me feel at ease with. You know, one of it being the giving over of uh, the idealism of art to the business of art and so on. 
I know there's a lot of artists that have no problems with it, but I, and I, I wish maybe I, I, I had that temperament, but I don't, it would make, would make life easier. I could just be a, a, a you know, a, a member of a, a gallery's roster and bide my time every two and a half years, have a show and, and just, you know, everything would be hunky dory. Right. But I'm not interested in that. I'm in, really interested in expanding the, for me, the, um, what I know of art and, and for me, it has been a life, uh, long, um, sense of trying to expand how, how, you know, the functioning of art, which is, which is why it has led me to, um, you know, a major project in West Africa. I was the project manager for a very large exhibition at PS MoMA PS one called the short century, uh, independence and, um, cultural movements in uh, political movements in Africa, 19, 45 to 1991, 1994, I should say. And so, and then that, that led to, um, you know, another show, uh, uh, I called curator, which I wrote the 10,000 word essay, um, called, um, Shanghai modern 1919 to 1945, which is about the, you know, uh, er, er moments of, um, modernity in, in China during the first Republic, um, uh, under Sun Yat-sen. Uh, post poetry movement May fourth, nineteen nineteen, and so on. So, um, it, so that that's how I, I I you know and and this course I, I should also say that this course uh, also during the pandemic led to my writing two screenplays about comparative racism in America. And the first one set in eighteen sixty eight, and the second one set in eighteen eighty five. Eighteen sixty eight uh, being uh, you know three years post Civil War. And uh, what I call the transition of the commerce of bodies, slave bodies, to the commerce of contracts, that is the commerce of, you know, of, um, of usurious contracts and the kind of extension of uh, de facto slavery by, by legal discursive means, right, where you have, uh, you know, contractual language that uh, protects the, uh, let's just say the, uh, the, the more powerful who holds that, who, who writes the terms of the contract and then the unfortunate, uh, coolie or, or indentured laborer who has to, um, you know, uh, 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 be assigned to that contract and so on. And so that's, I mean, research for me is, uh, I'm, I don't see myself as an academic, right? I see. And so I, it's, uh, I, I, I like the fact of being an artist and, and um, not being um, anchored or fixed to one um, way of working or, or way of thinking or, or, or even discipline. That's the great thing about um, it's, uh, being an artist. It's, it's, uh, it's, it can be, it's quite shamanistic, you might say, and so on. Um, but, you know, I am also, but I also like uh, writing. I think writing is very, very important. And I guess that's why, you know, working at Penn suits me to a high degree. <laughs> Right, because um, I, because I'm not, as I said, I'm I'm always um, questioning why am I making art? Why am I ma- being an artist? Why am I working at Penn? I question those things as well. I've, you know, I've I've, I've you know re- re- resigned from two tenured positions in, in the past. I don't I, I don't think I I know a, a single person has resigned from one tenured position. <laughs> so um, and that's the only way I can answer answer it. It's a it's a kind of curiosity I have about the world and and about finding out the limits of art or, and, uh, and also testing the boundaries of, of art uh, for, my, for my own understanding uh, as an artist.
Devin Grace, you've mentioned already so many wonderful collaborations you have with artists and curators and projects, but you likewise are researchers and artists working in documentary film and oral history projects. How and why does image making and storytelling allow you to be intentional about representation? What kinds of things are you thinking about as you communicate with wider audiences beyond your classroom? That's such a good question, and I think it's it's uh, it's such an important question because we do uh, tell stories differently in media other than text, um, and even within academic text, we uh, try to imagine more experimental forms of of writing as well. <clears throat> and I guess I would say that for me, um, <clears throat> an important part of thinking about what form will be appropriate for exploring this particular question or uh, creating uh, the, the kind of dialogue that we hope to create always has to do with an imagination of audience or the different audiences um, through which we would like to have some kind of impact, right? So for me, often, um, you know, what shapes a project at the sort of beginning stages of thinking about a project has to do not only with the question, but also with who is this for? You know, that question of audience, right? Who is this for? What do we want this to do in the world? And that helps me always to think about what is the appropriate format for them? Is it a film? Is it a play? Is it some other kind of more abstract multimedia installation um, type thing. And I think there, the asking of the question and the thinking about uh, the intervention are so interrelated. And I, I, I feel that that, um, that unity, I suppose, of process um, can sometimes happen more explicitly and more intentionally when we're working in non-text-based formats because it requires uh, a great deal of thought of how to make this intervention through a medium other than um, other than writing. A deep thank you to my guests, Ken Lum, Deb Thomas, and Grace Sanders. We have learned so much from you all, and we are grateful for your time with us. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for the second series of the Park podcast on political empathy. Over the course of three episodes, we've learned about interdisciplinary approaches to better understanding across political difference offered by faculty teaching SNF Padilla courses. Our guests have shared insights from political science, history, psychology, urban studies, fine arts, anthropology, and city planning. We've heard how they are intentionally crafting their courses to deepen understanding within their classrooms and give their students skills to better engage political difference. We hope we've underscored for you, the listener, the importance of connecting with others through a posture open to understanding them. This is a necessary part of civil dialogue, as well as a practice that can be explored through many different academic disciplines. The park is based on the metaphor of a public park, the commons, a public space where people of many different backgrounds can come together on an equal basis. 
Thank you for joining us here. And we hope you'll stay tuned for our next series on communities of practice at Penn, which will be coming soon.